Chapter 13 of The Track of the Typhoon by William Washburn Nutting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Dove. Chapter 13 The Gales in the Gulf Stream. It was on Saturday, November 13th, the 25th day from Ponta Delgada, that things really began to happen. With this day came the first of a series of gales which culminated in that of November 17th, during which Typhoon came triumphantly through as severe a drubbing as a small boat ever experienced without disaster. During the night we had plunged along under jib and mizzen to a west-southwest blow, holding about a northwest course and making fairly good weather of it. But the barograph curve had been dropping for two days, and consequently we were not surprised when, at seven in the morning during the skipper's watch, a terrific rainstorm hit us so suddenly that there was scarcely time to lower the mizzen before we were in the midst of it. In a remarkably short space of time, the wind hauled around from west-southwest to north, and for two hours and a half we reached along under jib alone, heading a little north of west. By 9.30 the wind had got around to the northeast and was blowing a full gale with the seas already grown to enormous size, though confused due to the sudden shift of wind. Raising the mizzen, we took a west-northwest course, and Typhoon behaved beautifully with the wind and seas slightly abaft the beam. With the wind abeam or slightly forward, she is likely to slap the seas with the flat of her bow, but with it anywhere aft of this point, her performance in rough water is superb. After a rest below during which Fox was on the wheel, I took her again from one o'clock until four. The character of the sea and the rain had made a noon sight impossible, but by the middle of the afternoon the atmosphere had cleared, and dead ahead I picked up the masts of a vessel still hull down below the horizon. Feeling that the ship was coming our way, we awaited the meeting with the excitement that such a break in the monotony of a long passage always causes. Slowly the sticks came up, much too slowly for a vessel underway, and as they grew they seemed to be absolutely without canvas. Then, as the hull finally came above the sea, we saw that the ship, a fine three-masted schooner, was practically hove to under half a mainsail and two headsails. She was almost directly in our path, and as we bore down on her at nearly six knots, we could see that she was making bad weather of it, wallowing and pitching a third of her length out of the water with every sea. She was not hove to in the sense that her headsails were aback, but was headed in the same direction we were going and making not more than a knot or two. Bending our course to pass within fifty yards to windward of her, Charles took the wheel, and, assisted by Jim and Fox, who held me to the main crutch, we photographed her twice, shielding the camera with our bodies from the seas that were coming over. Three figures in yellow oilskins on the quarter-deck of the schooner stood at the rail and seemed too stupefied at the apparition to return our salute as we waved them good luck and continued on our way. This first gale marked the culmination of the long barometric drop, and as the glass had started to rise rapidly by nightfall, we decided to carry on for the night under jib and mizzen, instead of resorting to the trysail, for we were doing nicely and could not afford to cut down our speed. By Sunday morning, November 14th, the wind had moderated, although the weather was still cloudy and so cool that we felt that we must be drawing out of the Gulf Stream. By nine o'clock, we were able to raise the single reefed mainsail 
and were doing a good seven knots when the wind hauled from north-northeast to east, back again to north-northeast, and then settled down to a light easterly, giving us about four knots on a west-northwest course. It was a great relief to be rid of the rain, the breaking seas, and the tiring motion, and we took advantage of the opportunity to rebuild the fire in the shipmate and prepare a good meal from our rapidly diminishing food supply. A noon sight through a rift in the clouds gave us an altitude of 36 degrees 20 minutes, which placed us in latitude 35 degrees 11 minutes 22 seconds. On Monday morning, the wind, which was still moderate, hauled to east by south, and we changed our course to northwest by north, as the Gulf Stream had not set us to the north as much as we had expected. Although cold enough to be out of it entirely, our calculation put us not much beyond the middle of the stream. A noon sight through the clouds gave us a latitude of 36 degrees 5 minutes 42 seconds, and another snapshot of the sun for longitude in the afternoon worked up to 68 degrees 33 minutes, Rather a disappointing showing, as it indicated that we had done but about 300 miles during the last three days of strong winds. Realizing that our progress was too slow, we endeavored to increase our speed with the spinnaker, which we set at 4 p.m., lowering the mizzen, which is worthless under the circumstances. But it was really blowing too hard for the light sail, and at 10 in the morning, the tack of the spinnaker carried away, and it was taken in, and we ran throughout the night under full mainsail, on a northwest-by-north course with rising east-southeast wind. The moderate weather that we had had during Sunday and Monday proved but a breathing spell between gales, for by the morning of Tuesday, November 16th, we were overtaken by another blow from the same quarter, and even stronger than the one of the 13th. At six o'clock in the morning, the lacing on the main gaff carried away, and ten minutes later, during a severe rain squall, the wind backed from east-southeast to east-northeast, and increased in intensity. Half lowering the mainsail to keep our steerage way, we hoisted the jib, finally lowering the mainsail entirely, stowing the boom in the crutch and running before it under jib alone for two hours. I took the wheel at ten o'clock and drove her for a while longer, with now and then a sea coming clear over me, filling the cockpit and thundering on the cabin trunk. By this time, the wind was so strong that we were in constant danger of losing the jib entirely. It was, of course, impossible to keep the wind exactly on the quarter and to steer an absolutely true course due to the big seas, and if we jibed again, as we already had done twice, I felt that the jib would be blown out of the bolt ropes. And so at 10.30, I had the boys bring up the trysail, lace it to the mast, and partially raise it to keep our steerage way, and to blanket the jib, which was then lowered, muzzled, and lashed to the bowsprit with considerable difficulty. While raising the trysail, one of the crutch tackles which we used to sheet it got adrift, and it took a few minutes of strenuous work, in which the nude form of the elongated Charles figured conspicuously, to get the sail in hand again and sheet it in. While we are on the subject, I wonder how many yachtsmen in this country know the proper way to lace a trysail to the mast. I must admit that I didn't until old faithful Harry Speed at Cowes explained the method to me. If the sail is laced spirally round and round the stick, you will find it well-nigh impossible to raise the sail and to lower it again. But if you lace it zigzag fashion, passing the line from the eye in the sail around the forward side of the mast to the next eye each time, instead of completely encircling the mast, 
you will find that there will be no difficulty in raising the sail with the throat halyard, and that it will come down with a rush when the halyard is cast off. By this time, we could see that we were in for something more serious than anything we had yet encountered, but any feeling of concern was entirely dispelled by the fine behavior of the ship. After putting some additional lashings on the tender, I took the wheel and thoroughly enjoyed the exciting experience. At times like this, we had occasion to thank Typhoon's long keel, for it was this feature that made it possible to keep her from either yawing or broaching too as we ran before it. Even so, it required careful steering every minute, for if we took the seas too squarely astern, there was that uncertain feeling, when coasting down the big ones at tremendous speed, that Typhoon might trip and actually pitch-pole, and if we took them too broadly over the quarter, there was an equally disconcerting feeling that she might broach too. At three o'clock, Charles took the wheel, and the rest of us went below. Jim and Dillaway were in the starboard berths, I was resting on the lee transom, and Fox was on the companion steps. No sooner had he drawn the companion slide than there was a tremendous crash which gave us the impression that we had been run down. I remember most distinctly that Jim, who had removed all his wet clothing and was absolutely naked, dropped with a mass of books, boxes, and other gear from a point directly above me, missed the table entirely, and fell on top of me, presenting a most grotesque spectacle. Then, for the moment, everything was blotted out by hot, dense steam caused by solid water coming down the Liverpool head and into the shipmate range. As the steam cleared, I remembered feeling greatly surprised that the weather side of the cabin and even the port lights were still intact after the shock. But otherwise, the cabin seemed a total wreck. The oily bilge water had actually come over the deck clamp and down onto the transom where I lay, and everything movable was a jumbled mass on the lee side. Fortunately, the boards had been placed in the companionway, as they always were in rough weather, and we were completely battened down except for the two swing ports in the after end of the trunk, through which considerable water had poured. Our first thought was of Charles. We jumped to the after ports to see whether he was still with us, and there he was, clinging to the wheel, up to his waist in the water that had filled the cockpit, and was still almost to the level of the combings. Dazed by his experience, and in the midst of a floating mass of water breakers, ropes, and the pathetic remains of our spoiled salt horse, he made a ridiculous spectacle. But he was still there, which was cause for general rejoicing. It seemed that Typhoon had been allowed to broach too, and had been knocked flat on her beam ends with both mastheads in the water, and although the experience was by no means a comfortable one, it was worthwhile in that it proved that she would come back. In the rush of building the ship, I had suggested to Baldwin that to avoid the delay of having an iron keel cast and shipped to Baddock, it might be advisable to put all of the ballast inside as the fishermen do. But Baldwin, good old sailor man that he is, insisted on putting a 3,000-pound lead shoe on the keel, and this, while it is really lighter than she needs, was sufficient to right the ship. She had come back slowly, but she had come back. Three days before, when we met the schooner hove to, we thought that it was blowing. But that gale had been a mere curtain-raiser to what we were now experiencing, and we felt that at last the limit had been reached. However, it was not until the following day, November 17th, that we met the real test. End of chapter 13